you look back at you know errors or problems that are created in politics and there's so often uh, you know, numerous points where someone could or should have just put their hand up and said sorry am I the only one that thinks this is not yeah. gonna work and can I just talk you through if you, like, if you overrule me fine but can I just flag up why I think this is bonkers welcome to the connected leadership podcast hosted by Andy Lapata the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions make leaders jobs easier and help you to progress your career Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. This is an introduction that I have recorded and re-recorded three or four times over the last few days with the changing pace of the news in the UK. And this is not the scheduled uh, episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast you might be expecting if you listen to last week's episode. With all of the political upheaval and turmoil in the UK in recent weeks, I felt it was time to share with you uh, an interview that I uh, conducted uh, about 2017-2018 with the now Foreign Secretary in the UK, James Cleverly. Uh, it was not a broadcast interview and that may come across in the background noise and the nature of our conversation. Uh, very clearly not recorded for the podcast, um, but hopefully it's, it's broadcast quality enough so that it won't hamper your enjoyment of, of listening to it. Um, but I interviewed James for my book, Just Ask. And I wanted to talk to him about vulnerability in politics, whether we allow our politicians to be vulnerable, whether Margaret Thatcher's The Lady Is Not For Turning really set the wrong example uh, for vulnerability and admission of weaknesses and mistakes in politics. Uh, and we talked about politicians making mistakes, how decisions are made, handling U-turns and so forth, which all seems very topical right now. Uh, there is uh, quite a large chunk where we talk about the mistakes made around the social care policy in the UK it, that led largely to Theresa May's uh, poor result in the 2017 general election, uh, which, which may seem like ancient history right now with everything that's happened since then. Uh, but I've left it in because I think there's so much richness in what James says uh, that is equally applicable to what's happened in the UK in recent weeks that's happening all over the world in politics. And there's so much we can take from this in terms of our, our own professional relationships, our own careers, our own businesses, the way we work with people, the way we make decisions, uh, the way we engage with people, who might be critical of us and the way we criticise others as well. So it's, it is something for a politics uh, geek like me who's fascinated and horrified by everything that's happening at the moment. Uh, but it's also something uh, in accordance with what I try and achieve with this podcast. It's something for those who just want to take something away that's practical and of value in terms of how professional relationships impact uh, your success. Uh, so uh, enjoy. Uh, the the uh, publicised episode of the Connected Leadership podcast with the Red Arrows, uh, former Red Arrows pilot Dan Lowe's, will come out next week. So you can look forward to that then. But in the meantime, uh, enjoy this conversation with James Cleverly. Uh, and we started talking about what the culture in politics actually is when it comes to admitting mistakes. I hate, I hate saying this is a unique environment because... Mm that implies that I've tested every other environment mm. and um, 
and I haven't, and I, so I can't say this is a unique environment, but I've worked in a number of different types of environments. Yeah. Um, obviously, like everybody, you, know, you go through the school, university type environments. I've been through uh, military, uh, I've been through business, I've been through small businesses and big businesses. And in all those environments, there is an understanding that people are not um, infallible. There's uh, there's an understanding that making mistakes is part of a learning and evolutionary process, and there is an understanding that um, that you can't know everything, you can't hold all knowledge, particularly detailed knowledge, yeah. in your head all the time. And those things are completely accepted, and people accept that in their private lives as well. Um, and so that's for me that, that strikes me that that's the normal situation yeah. and everyone's very comfortable with that yeah. um, you know, if you say to someone well I don't know mate I'll, let me check and I'll text you or let me check and I'll ping you an email no one feels funny about that in politics um, particularly at, at Westminster politics where you've got that real obsessive gaze there is a massive disincentive to, li- to, to, to exist or to live your life or, or to act in the way that would be normal in any other walk of life. Um, and I think some of that is around it, the very confrontational, very immediate confrontational nature of how we, do, uh, how we work. So in the business world, you're in a meeting, uh, your boss turns around to you and says, you know, what were the, you know, what were the, uh, what were the last quarter sales figures for the Manchester office? And you go, oh, I don't know. I know they were up on last year, but I, I can't, I can't exactly remember. Um, when I go back to my desk, I'll double check, or if you, I can check my phone now, and I'll, I'll let you know in a minute or two. In, in the business world, you'd go, okay, fine. What you wouldn't then do is you wouldn't then turn around to someone else and go, why doesn't he know? You know, and then have one of your colleagues go, well, to be honest with you. If he doesn't have those figures in his head, he probably should be out of a job. He's clearly not credible. You, know, you, you don't get that. Whereas in politics, you get this, you get the situation where you're often, uh, whether it's in the chamber, as someone from the government f- side finishes what they're saying and sits down, the next speaker will always be someone from the opposition benches. Mm. If you're doing media, again, you always turn around to the person that's in the studio saying, well, is that answer good enough? So. There's a massive disincentive to show any kind of vulnerability or any kind of weakness or any lack of knowledge, um, and and so that's that's why and and even like the language of the U-turn, everything's a U-turn. Yeah. If you if you implement a policy and then bits of it aren't working, logically you would expect people to go actually 80% of that works brilliantly, 10% is okay and I'm happy to leave it. And that 10%, we need to deal with that. Now, again, in any other walk of life, if you said that's 80% good, 10% adequate, 10% not good, and I'm going to make changes to that 10%, everyone would go, yeah, it makes sense. But of course, in politics, you make even a modest course correction on a policy. It's a U-turn, it's a climb down, it's a scandal, it's an embarrassment. So there's a massive incentive to always give the impression that everything's perfect first time every time and of course it just isn't the world doesn't work like that um, who's to blame 
we all are. I think we collectively have to take responsibility for this because I do it. I mean, I do it. I do it to the Labour Party. They do it to me. It, it's kind of, I suppose, to an extent, it's the it, it's our it's the rules of engagement that we implicitly agree to when you get involved in politics, and it's a very it's a very confrontational environment. Perhaps the only thing that is similar is perhaps in a courtroom where you've got that immediate rebuttal yeah. you've got someone who's listening for the detail of what you're saying not just the generality but the detail of what you're saying who will pounce on an error that's probably the only environment where it's quite like this and of course um, a lot of politicians are ex-QCs aren't they and there's a lot of and I don't know which, which is the chicken and egg yeah. um, because there is a lot of that there is a lot of that crossover in terms of people from the legal profession some of it's of course because a large part of what we do is make laws yeah. so it's logical that if you've if you've been at the end of the process where you are interpreting law and you have a view as to how it could be improved that's an obvious one but again some of it's maybe personality types mm. so people who are comfortable in that very confrontational environment military people and and people that have come from a legal background yeah. are statistically massively overrepresented in Parliament and those are the two environments where that very immediate very confrontational environment is is more normal than elsewhere I think that um, I think that as long as you recognize there's a little there's a degree of artificiality to it if you recognize that someone says that is a terrible u-turn and he really should resign if you thought, if I was in a studio and I made a mistake, <clears throat> I said that we we were spending two billion when actually I meant twenty billion. Order of magnitude error in the moment. If the person in the studio said, "Well, look, he's got it wrong by an order of magnitude. He's clearly not on top of his brief. I mean, he, he shouldn't be in this job. He should make way for someone more credible." Now, maybe if I thought they actually, genuinely thought that I was useless and needed to be kicked out it would hurt yeah. a bit but there's a degree of artificiality to it because they will go oh he's cleaning it up to yeah. and and then you know I might I might say oh boy well if he's if he's going to obsess about what was obviously a slip of the tongue it's political opportunity and then you have a bit of a knockabout yeah. and the conversation moves on and I know that they don't really want to try and kick me out of a job and so I can I can live with it um I think that it. Um, I think that it's it's manageable when it's like that. I think where it gets harder is where things are genuinely difficult. Yeah. When there's a policy which isn't working, or where there's been a an, a, a mistake that has been made, an error of judgment, or a, an error of implementation, or a policy where you you know during the drafting process you missed the elephant in the room yeah. uh, or whatever it might be and you're under real genuine pressure and obviously you know we've had ministers had to resign over various things um, and when you've got that that kind of baying it, it, you know, it's, it's almost like a mob mindset mm. you know, that I can imagine is really difficult Whereas, as I say, in, 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 in other walks of life, you don't fire people as quickly or as easily as you fire 
ministers. Yeah. Um, and if someone cocks up and they say, look, I misread that, you know, I, I was predicting this market shift and the market shifted the other way, and mm. that's cost us. Um, and, you know, we understand why it happened. This is what we're going to do in the immediate term to mitigate yeah. it. And this is the long term change we're going to put on. It might affect your career prospects. But the idea is someone turns around and says, sorry, it's a bit of an embarrassment, you've got to get it. It just doesn't work like that. Whereas, of course, in politics, you've always got that sword of Damocles hanging over you, that you make a decision in good faith, you say something you believe to be true at the time, which turns out to be wrong, or or whatever it might be, that that's you done. Um, and um, And that puts an additional pressure which is something that I've not seen in, in, as I say, many other walks of life. So the social care example, the, the, the manifesto yeah. policy and the way it was handled with Theresa May saying nothing's changed, what went wrong, what could have been done better and where, you know, and, and where was it unfair on, on the people that wrote the manifesto and the Prime Minister? Yeah, that's a, that's a classic example, and I think it's a good example because it um, it shows how mistakes are made, um, and typically the difference between you know, a good decision and a bad decision is quite small, and often there are a number of points where an intervention could or should have happened that didn't happen and and when a decision goes well so a bad decision and a good decision start in the same place and they go on their journey through the decision making process and that can be formal or informal Uh, but there's always a process even if you don't realise there's a process there's a process and through that process there will be opportunities for people to intervene and stop it going wrong or to help it go right and when a decision gets to the implementation phase, successfully implemented, people look back and go, wasn't that a job well done? It was because at the five or six points where it was gonna go horribly wrong, someone noticed and tweaked it through its journey and kept it on the straight and narrow. Or actually uh, there were times when it did go a bit wrong, but not terribly wrong and it kind of it recovered. Where things go wrong, like the adult social care policy, it's it's in, inevitably because a number of points where intervention could have happened were missed. Yeah. Um, and so when 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 people go, so what went wrong? The instinct is to point to the most obvious thing, and typically the 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 the, the, the thing closest to the end point um, and so you know you talk about that people go oh it was it was it was really badly communicated and and you know the Prime Minister shouldn't have said nothing has changed that's what the problem was and you kind of go okay yeah that was that was a problem it it was um, it wasn't well communicated and when the Prime Minister said nothing has changed um, well clearly that that's, that that wasn't the case mm. What she meant was the fundamentals are still there. That's not the same as what she quite said. So you could point to that and go, that was the problem. But actually, if you take a step back, there were a number of things which all conspired 
to get us to that point. Um, and so, you know, you start from the beginning of the process. Um, there was a major problem. There is still a major problem in terms of balancing the need for adult social care and how it's going to be paid for. So that's the starting point. There is an issue which has got to be addressed. And there is no easy, universally popular way of dealing with it. So at some point, something unpopular has got to happen. Now, we didn't say that. And we didn't say it publicly. So what we should have really have done is been saying that publicly for a period of time. Just say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, do we all agree that as a society, we don't want our older people, you know, uncared for? We all agree with that. Yes? Right, fine. We all agree that as a society, we're getting gently older, Mm. demographically. Yes? Yes. And we all agree that somehow looking after our older people has got to be paid for. Yep. Right. And we all agree that there's no easy solution because if it was that easy someone would have already thought of it so we start off by saying do we all agree that those are the parameters of this decision yeah. and you tee that up beforehand then what you do is say right so so we agree there is a problem we we got a good idea what the problem looks like here are two or three very broad brush solutions so one solution is we say to old people sort yourselves out yeah, if you haven't put money away that's your problem it's not our state's problem other problem, uh, other solution is everyone above a certain age gets universal care irrespective of how much money they have in the bank, cash, assets, whatever. So that's one end, that's the other end of the spectrum. We agree that neither of those really work. Okay, so it's somewhere in the middle. So it's some kind of state element, some kind of person. So you start having that conversation and we didn't do that. So when we announced or when the policy was being developed, it was being developed in a in, in a public policy vacuum. Problem one. Problem two. Very small number of people working on it. Very clever people. Um, and as is often the case with a small team, you get some very effective work, but you get a kind of a distillation of the idea. So everyone kind of agrees with everyone, who then agrees with everyone, agrees with everyone, agrees with everyone. And it's really easy to get to a point where no one has unplugged themselves from the matrix and just seen what's going on in the world. Yeah. Just to double check. You know, so everyone's got their sleeves rolled up, everyone's got stuck in. You know, good people trying to come up with a good solution, best of intentions, not trying to be Machiavellian or sneaky, just really st- stuck into the detail. And what they didn't do is they didn't do that periodic sanity check. So that got right through the end of the process. Then it was a snap election, portfolio, uh, the manifesto developed quickly, didn't have the group discussion dissemination process you'd normally expect, problem number four or five or six, whatever. And then finally, policy announced and the people asked to sell the policy. The first time we got to hear about it was midway through a campaign and a lot of us were going, hang on, sorry. I, I don't quite understand the detail of this. So we were still learning what the proposal was when the attacks were coming in. Yeah. So the criticism proposal, and it's so much easier to criticise because you can criticise in broad brush terms, but the defence was in the detail. Yeah. And we weren't on top of the detail. 
So we had all these criticisms washing over us like a tidal wave, and we had nothing to bat it back with. Problem seven, eight. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then, of course, you had the final point of it was the, you know, when, again, when we did a normal logical thing, which was, hang on a second, let's just accept this isn't working. And rather than just ploughing on relentlessly, mm. pretending it's all fine, let's do the sensible, pragmatic thing and make some changes to it. But of course, in the political context, you make some changes to it, you're fessing up to fallibility in a world where fallibility is the ultimate yeah. sin, and yet beaten up for that as well. So, I mean, that's a classic, it, 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 it's, it's a really good learning tool for people in politics, but also people out in other walks of life, about how a, you know, how a problem occurs, how an error occurs, and how various points of intervention were missed. And kind of you could suggest, and we can never know this for definite, but you could suggest that if any one of those points of intervention had been taken, mm. it probably would have not been as problematic in the end. Almost certainly not problematic. Um, and hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, and, and and this is where in uh, you know you look back at you look back at you know errors or problems that are created in politics, and there's so often. Uh, you know, numerous points where someone could or should have just put their hand up and said, "Sorry, am I the only one that thinks this is not yeah. going to work?" And can I just talk you through? If you like, if you overrule me, fine. But can I just flag up why I think this is bonkers? Because it just it isn't working for me. And that's quite a difficult thing to do in any environment, particularly in, in, in politics. And so, do you think there's a couple of questions that spring from that? On the last point, do you think that there is a culture within politics generally? as much as you can say so within the Conservative Party at the moment or at that time mm. where people are frightened to speak out um, particularly because they're, they're frightened that they'll look foolish, they'll look as if they don't know and they'll get shot down. In that instance I think um, that that unwillingness to press the stop button mm was particularly acute because we were in the middle of a snap election. So everything was happening very, very quickly. And if if you're about to launch a manifesto, if someone says, right, Andy, come on, we're going to launch this manifesto next week, and you get the sniff of something that you feel a bit kind of, and you say, right, hang on, stop. I want to stop the whole process because there's that thing which, which mm. just, it, it doesn't feel right to me. And then people are kind of going, well, if you're going to do that, mate, you you better turn it around within hours, not days, hours, because yeah. that's hitting the printers on Wednesday. You kind of think, oh, is it? And, and that it's not an integrity thing; it's a self-confidence thing. Because the question you're then forced to ask yourself privately is, does the problem that I think I've seen, a, is it really a problem? B is it of the scale that I think it might be? And C, even if it is a problem, and even if it's quite a big problem, does delaying every other thing 
that's going into that manifesto mm. because of this is that worth it um, because sometimes there is a big advantage uh, to uh, you know pace and getting ahead of the news cycle and that kind of stuff and you kind of go well maybe it's worth just taking that little risk mm. because there is a bigger reward so it's not it's not necessarily a fear thing I think as a, uh, uh, there is a lot of self-editing um, and a lot of people do ask themselves the question like you know, is the is the row worth the win because we're all all politicians and, and advisors and civil servants uh, typically quite strong personalities yeah. and we are not afraid to go I think that's wrong in general we're, we're disproportionately mm. likely to go yeah. I think that's wrong we spend a lot of our working life yeah. going that's wrong but even with us as a pool of people who are more comfortable doing that than average in certain circumstances um, you're really disincentivized to doing so do you think generally that's okay and that works, or do you think there's scope for it to, to there's scope for improvement in the way that people respond in, in situations like that? Um, I think it is it is always important to um, th- th- I think it's important there is always a mechanism mm-hmm. whereby if you can see a car crash happening, the the, the you, know, you can intervene yeah. and, and do something to stop it. Doesn't mean to say that everyone gets a veto on everything, because then public policy, government would just grind to a halt. But I do think it's really important that um, if you're looking at something, you think, yeah, I can see, uh, you know, I can see, I can see this is going to be a problem. Yeah. That there is a way of of stepping in and doing it quickly, mm-hmm. and also doing it in in an environment where people don't think you're being a dog in the manger or just yeah. being you know disruptive or, or, or whatever that, that they know you're doing it for the best reasons and actually that's very much the team ethos if you're part of a team and collectively all the elements all, all the all the people within that team mm. are pushing to the same goal you know, are respect each other and understand each other's strengths and weaknesses when one of them says stop I think I see a problem. There should be enough organisational confidence that people go, well, look, if he says stop, we all stop. Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, mate, you got you got an hour. And it, yeah, if time is tight, and sometimes this is, you know, if someone's about to make a ministerial statement, you are talking about minutes rather than yeah. hours or even days. So if someone's saying stop. Um, before the Secretary of State goes to the dispatch box and says that thing, that figure just doesn't feel right. Yeah. I, I thought it was ten times bigger or ten times smaller, or I thought we'd stopped doing that, or I thought we started doing that. Mm. Well, whatever it is, you need to be able to go, stop. Um, let's just quickly double-check that thing. And if it turns out that you were wrong to say stop, that no one goes... And do you think that happens enough? Not enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, um, <coughs> probably not enough. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And getting the balance right, because because um, if you're just if you're constantly being uber uber cautious, mm. again you lose the dynamism. You lose the and you become slow and ponderous and 
and that would be the same in a business as well. And that, yeah. that is something that would transfer across. Yeah, and so it's about, it's, it's like everything else. You, um, you, you need to have those safety valves in place and it needs to be just safe enough. Um, I know that sounds a bit of a weird one, but um, talking to someone um, who uh, was involved in uh, planes and, and uh, aeronautical design, and he said, um, building, you know, putting extra safety features in a plane is easy. Mm. You just keep putting loads and loads of extra yeah. safety features, and that's fine. You make a really, really safe plane, really safe plane. He said, but after a while, it's too heavy to fly, and then it's useless as a plane. Yeah. So it's very safe, but it just doesn't do what it needs to do. So actually, you have to you have to balance. You can't just keep loading more safety features in. Yeah. And the same way with this, you can't keep loading in more and more safety valves, because after a while, the the thing just doesn't do its function. Whether that's a business, whether that's politics, um, military, whatever. I've got to balance it. Just the last thing on that social care policy, um, given that all of the different issues that you talked about, a lot of it sounds like policy being made in a closed room, in a closed environment, without much discourse outside that. Um, <coughs> accepting that it was a policy made in fairly short term because of the snap election. Um, how, how often is policy made without enough public discourse mm. or how often could be policy benefit from more public discourse and how much of that is down to the pressure on politicians to be seen to, to present the answers not ask for them yeah and that that that, that point about um, public expectations of of, of of what we do and mm. how much we know um, is is really telling um, so at one point, I, um, when I was running for, I put myself forward for the mayor of Lewisham yeah. back in 2000 and, I want to say six, I think it was, 2006 mayoral elections. And one of the things I did was uh, using a social media platform, I can't even remember which one it was now, put forward a, a, an idea to say, look, I'm interested in your ideas. You know, tell me the things that you think I could do to make Lewisham better. And I was quite shocked because a load of people basically said, "Well, if you haven't got any ideas, why are we voting for you? Why are you asking me? You're not. You want to be the mayor. If you haven't got ideas, then what's the point?" And I assumed that people would, would feel <coughs> empowered and valued, and that it would be quite a, an exciting option for them. But as I say, a load of people came back saying, well, you're the bloody politician. You come up with the answers. And I do think there's that, there is that feeling that we're meant to have all the answers, that, um, that we're meant to have all the good ideas, that we've got all the clever people. And so there is a, there is a balance to be had um, between the, um, the desire to come up with a fully formed policy and, and and kind of harvesting public ideas, or or even just or even just uh, what we call rolling the pitch, which is getting people to understand there's a problem that needs to be resolved. Classic one for that historically is uh, the budget. 
Mm. So you know, traditionally the budget was an incredibly secretive process. I mean, the Chancellor and a few senior Treasury ministers, not even all the whole, not even the whole Treasury team, but senior Treasury ministers, some very senior civil servants, crunched the numbers, and it was all done very, very much in secret. And it was the big reveal, and um, I can't remember who it was. I should, I should, you know, again, the kind of thing you meant to have in your head the whole time. Uh, there was a chance to resign because um, uh, his 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 budget was. Was 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 leaked. This was back in the 40s, 50s. I need to double check. Um, because at the time that was just, you know, unacceptable, totally unacceptable. So there is this, there is this, um, there is there is a, a degree of pressure that we're meant to come up with the, the perfect answer mm-hmm. out of nowhere. I increasingly think that that's not tenable in uh, in the way politics works at the moment. So I do think. Um, and we see this now with the Treasury. So the Treasury, so Philip Hammond as the Chancellor, invites MPs to come up with ideas, to come up with thoughts, to come up with plans. The final decisions are still held securely because what you don't want is before the budget announcement, you don't want you know, a whole load of companies hedging yeah. against certain decisions. So it's, it is quite important that certain key elements are kept secret, not just secure, but absolutely secret. But the process is now much more collegiate uh, and I think that's a um, I think that's a really really good thing um, and hopefully it, it, it minimizes the chance of errors creeping in or, or, or you know those kind of problems that trip you up in politics where in hindsight everyone goes wow how did no one see that coming um, so I think that's a good thing but there is a balance there is like everything there is a balance because you know, you become too open. Everyone's thinking, well, hang on. If I'm doing your homework for you, why don't I just do your job? Yeah. Okay. Um, so how can... Assuming we, we want to create a different culture where <coughs> politicians can ask their electorate, you know, for their input, where politicians can say, actually, you know what, we got that wrong. Mm. We're changing this where a politician, uh, it's when you talked about getting the figures wrong, my mind immediately went to Diane Abbott, um, yeah. you know, in the election. And I was, I, I was going to cheekily ask you, was she treated unfairly? But there was well, a lot more a, to that as well. It's but, an interesting, because I was, because I was publicly uh, very critical of her mm. at the time. And, and I did take the mickey. You know, I yeah, I did take the mickey. Um, and I don't think I was wrong to do so, because having said everything I've just said, I do think ultimately, though, um, there is a um, there is a difference between you know, slip of the tongue error, um, or you know you, you you forget an element. You got a sh- the, you know, the old rule: ne- never put a list in a speech, because you'd always you'd always forget one of you. Know, you, you stand up and say there are five things I've done that it we should. Twice yeah. this year, yeah. It's, sorry, <laughs> there are five things yeah. that we must always remember: one, two, three, four, or the other one. You know, so we ought to never put a list. Who's the U.S. presidential candidate did it in the? Oh, uh, no, it's just so easy, so yeah. easy to do. So <laughs> easy to do. Um, and um, and so there's there's a difference between that kind of stuff. And I think where Diane actually got it wrong. 
uh, and was and was criticised. Um, and I think I think the criticism was fair. I think the I think the nature of some of the criticism went too far. Yeah. And I think just the quantum of criticism was. You can't control that, but that that was that was a bit oppressive. But Ver, this was this was like a core policy platform. Yeah. I mean, this was the foundation stone policy. If, as the shadow home sector, your big pitch to the British people is, we're going to have, I can't remember how many, a thousand extra police officers, yeah. ten thousand extra police officers, I think. And someone says, well, and particularly in policy where. Yeah, everything you spend has got to be raised. So if someone says, right, you, you're promising 10,000 police officers, how much is that going to cost and where are you going to get the money? Those are the most predictable questions mm. you are ever going to get. Yeah. Um, and if you trip over at the most fundamental level, then, then that, I think, is legit criticism. And frankly, it was a radio interview. So write it on a bit of paper. And that's one of the other things where actually I think a lot of people inside the bubble were very, very critical. Because we've always we've all been in situations like that. And actually one of the first rules, and I think this is this is a, a you know it's just a, a hallmark of professionalism. Every time I do media, I get a briefing from the briefing team at Central Office. Every time. Every time. On subjects that I know inside out. I will have, perhaps I did media on the Monday, I'm doing media again on the Tuesday on the same subject. I get the briefing again on the Tuesday before you go on because it's, for me, it's, it's a hallmark of professionalism. Johnny Wilkinson used to kick hundreds of practice drop goals. Mm. You, know, you don't just rely on your innate ability, you graft. And I think where a lot of us inside the Westminster bubble felt that she was a legitimate target for criticism was that was clearly a failure of preparation. Because that is the kind of stuff that you should just have at your fingertips. You should have bullet point briefing notes. And it's the kind of thing where you you know, you know don't just go in and think, oh, I'll, I'll be fine, I'll cuff it. You graft. And I yeah. think for a lot of us, it was like, you didn't work hard enough. Yeah. That's That was the problem there. Was it fair? And that's the knife edge one. I think a degree of criticism, totally fair. Um, Criticiser, uh, and some of that criticism comes in the form of uh, ridicule. Um, there's a very strong tradition of um, satire in politics, both within politicians and, mm. and outside coming in. So I think that she was legitimately satirised and, 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 and to an extent ridiculed. I think when some of it started getting very personal, that's where you kind of go right, enough, um, and that's and that's a tricky one because you know we loop back to where we started, which was so you know how do we encourage you know, how do we encourage people to get in politics? How do we involve? How do we encourage politicians to be more open? Uh, to be willing to be a bit more vulnerable be willing to say I don't mm. I don't know um, I suppose arguably that would have been a that would have been a legitimate get out for her if she just said I'm sorry who was it it was um, it was LBC wasn't it it was LBC yeah it was uh, Nick Ferrari it was Nick Ferrari if she just said Nick my mind's gone blank for the moment 
um, it is fully costed and uh, bear with me I'll just check my notes and I'll give you the figure in just a moment he might have said oh come on you should have these figures at your fingertips didn't Jeremy Corbyn do that a couple of days later with yeah. his iPad yeah um, <clears throat> and again it's, it's one of these it's one of these things where there is a balancing act. you can get away with it mm. um, I think I think the challenge that they had is that it played to a broader narrative which was you're just making up the math as you go along you haven't really got any idea how you're going to pay for all these spending commitments and when it feeds a narrative it goes for it um, and actually during the general election campaign with adult social care the narrative has started to develop that um, so the narrative that hit us badly was that you're uncaring mm. and and therefore something which even if unfairly reinforced that narrative it, it lands and the adult social care people turn around saying you don't care about old people garbage of course yeah. of course we do but it just played to a narrative and it tripped us up have you subscribed to the connected leadership podcast yet to make sure that you never miss an episode for more resources from andy including a regular tips newsletter videos blogs and more podcasts please visit andylapata.com forward slash insights i think we need to be honest about the vulnerabilities not the vulnerabilities uh, just about the the natural limitations of politicians as people um, that um, people with the best of intentions sometimes screw up um, that well very well thought through plans sometimes don't work as well as they intended and there is nothing wrong with making adjustments and adaptations as you go along um, that would that would create I think a healthier environment for government and, and public policy and policy development and that kind of stuff the big question is is it really possible um, because in order to do that you'd need to have some kind of almost like universally agreed um, you know demilitarized zone politically where you say actually you know what we're not going to we're not going to go after you aggressively mm. we're not going to we're not going to criticise you too much if you do X, Y, and Z. But if you do that, 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 we're absolutely going to go for you. So I, just, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, which is a shame because um, certain types of people who I think could and should have a role to play in politics are very much dissuaded from getting involved in politics because of the very confrontational nature. Yeah. Um, and I think um, we don't have enough women in politics and um, some of the feedback that I get is about the very confrontational nature it's often described as very macho um, I don't think confrontational is inherently a, a macho thing but I think people understand uh, and if we can make it less macho if we can make it less confrontational if we could, if we could create a bit more room 
for people in the public eye to learn from small errors and problems mm. and adapt them and improve them and deploy those improvements without getting crucified for the little error. That would be good. You, you wouldn't be so incentivized to kind of gloss over problems and just say everything is fine. There is nothing that could possibly be done to improve this. Um, which of course is garbage. That's, that's just that's not how the universe works. There's always the opportunity to tweak and improve. Um, and, um, and successful businesses, that's what they do. Um, you know, when Apple produced an updated iPhone, which improves on things from previous Apple iPhones, no one says Apple with massive U-turn or, you know, it just, people go, oh, you know, you spotted a problem. Um, if there's a bug, you, you send out a software update and people kind of go, oh yeah, they fixed that, they fixed that problem. Yeah, thanks for doing that nice and quickly. Thanks for recognising that it's a problem. You know, I send in my little feedback, you know, my phone keeps turning off and I'm not sure why. And they write back, say, I'm sorry, yeah, it was a software bug. Download this patch and it's all sorted. You think better of them. You go, oh, they listened, they've sorted it. And I feel a greater brand affinity to them because of that. And in politics, we're like, it's n- yeah, there is nothing wrong with your phone. Like, yeah, it is. It keeps turning off. No, it doesn't. Yeah, but it really does because it's literally turned off as I'm speaking to you, kind of. And maybe it's a bit of a pipe dream, um, but it would be it would be it would be good if we could do that. But um, as I say, it would it would require the opposition parties to give us an easier ride than they currently give us in the hope that at some point when they're in government and we're in opposition, we'll reciprocate. What are your relationships like cross-branch? This is an interesting one, actually, because um, generally they're pretty good. Uh, do you know Diane Abbott? I do I do a bit. I, I don't pretend I know her well. But do you, I mean, uh, did you see her after you criticised her in the election? Yeah, we exchanged pleasantries yeah. and we brush it off. You know, I've yeah. been criticised. I've been criticised by people on the Labour benches and on the Lib Dem benches and vice versa. Um, and it's a, it's a funny one because in order to in order to continue a successful working relationship mm. in this place, you have to be able to rub shoulders and do perhaps work on committees or on all parliamentary sorry, all party parliamentary groups, all these, the, the kind of cross-party working mm-hmm. that goes on behind the scenes and is very, very important. To make that work, you have to maintain a good personal relationship with people who you've publicly and regularly been very critical of. And it's a weird one because from an outsider looking in, it, it, it means that the criticism can look synthetic or that it's just a bit of a game and that we have a go at each other in public and then we're all laughing and joking you know and chatting with each other behind the scenes and and I can absolutely see how it does look like that but um, but it kind of that's how it has to be I think in that <clears throat> You do need to have robust criticism. It's the nature of our, it's the nature of our system. 
um, but by the same token, you have to you have to separate the the personal from the professional. Part of that is 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 we don't use each other's names, particularly in the chamber. Mm. That's why you always talk in the third person. Yeah. <coughs> and that's why you refer to someone by their constituency. Yeah. Because that's a, a subtle but regular reminder that you are talking about the elected representative of those 70, 80, 90,000 people that they represent. Um, it doesn't completely eradicate some of the you know, confrontational nature, but I'm guessing it'd probably be worse if, if that wasn't there. Andrew Mitchell was on the last Matt Ford podcast. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you listened to it, but he said uh, his his father was in the house at the same time, and he used to call him my honourable and filial yeah, yeah, friend. Yeah. And he used to, his dad used to attack him when he was a minister. Yeah. But he'd he'd always say my honourable and filial friend yeah. with it. Yeah. It is a it is a funny one because I've you know I I've um, there are certain people I get on very very well with. Mm. I think Angela Rayner. I got a huge amount of time for Angela Rayner. Um, again, listen to the podcast she did with Nick Robinson about mm. her early life, how she got involved in politics and that kind of stuff. It's it was incredibly moving, incredibly impressive. Yeah. So you know, I went to uh, a good school, joined the army, went into business. I had all these things that were helping me develop the kind of character and the kind of personality mm. that that means that hopefully I fit fairly well in this Westminster environment. And you, you know, you listen to her life story. <clears throat> it was as if everything was geared up to prevent her from getting here. Mm. It was almost as if fate was putting every barrier it could think of between her and this place. And yet, here she is, Labour front bench, well liked and well respected. Um, and I like and respect her a huge amount. Um, and you know, we've 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 shared a joke and that kind of stuff. But when she was criticising our um, school meals policy and she got her facts wrong I went after her and it's not because I, it's not because I disliked her because I don't and it's not because I don't respect her mm. because I do but because you know I would again it's, it's, it's almost it's, it's almost a measure of respect that I don't give her an easy ride just because I like and respect her. But you can give someone a hard ride, but do it respectfully. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where you sort of keep coming back to a line. And I guess my question for you, because you're saying if the opposition were to agree to give us an easier time, I guess it takes someone to lead by example in whatever uh, environment it is. Mm. And you've got a reputation. I remember you from school as well. You're cheeky, you know, and, <laughs> and so you like that part of it. Um, and I think it can still be done respectfully, but if you were to go easy on an opposition frontbencher who made a mistake, and, and an understandable mistake, yeah. would that in the current environment do too much damage to your personal brand uh, and paint you as weak rather than help create a sea change in the way uh, politicians are viewed? Possibly. Quite possibly. I think that... So the big question is, would it create that sea change? Uh, and that's one of the challenges. So the short answer is I don't know. Yeah. It's entirely feasible that one side or another, if they did it to us or they did it or we did it, we did it to them. It's entirely feasible. You just bank it and just say, oh, thank you for that. Yeah. You know, you could have, 
he could have stuck it to me and yeah. he didn't and because um, yeah, you can't sign a contract to say yeah. like, I'm going to be nice to you yeah. you be nice to me um, and of course you know these um, these rules of the road you know are, are not um, they're not binding contractually they're 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 that out of habit and uh, and out of precedent uh, and tradition. I think I think that, that as a starting point, as a starting point, if we could if we could get into a situation where where the debate was 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 discharged purely through fact, that would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Because one of the things that has really crept in recently or maybe it's always been there but it's more noticeable now is how much criticism we get based on things which are just factually completely wrong mm. um, and occasionally not too often but occasionally MPs will criticise another MP or government based on things which are factually wrong and I'll give them the benefit of doubt to say they do it in error because sometimes we all do it. You know, you see something, you go, "Oh, I can't believe that." I'm going to comment on it. Yeah. And then you realise that actually it's a load of garbage, and you've criticised someone unfairly. Um, I think that would be a good starting point if we get into the habit of just saying, "Oh, actually, I criticised you for this thing. I realised that that was factually wrong." So I'm, you know, I have I would, you done that? I'm trying to think, actually. Um, I'm trying to think. Nothing springs to mind which makes me think that that I've not. So I don't think I've criticised someone based on something which turned out to be factually factually inaccurate. Um, this is probably a fantastic opportunity for, for for someone to trawl through my social media output and pull me up. And I don't think I have. Um, and there have been um, there have been a couple of occasions. Actually, to be fair, there have been a couple of occasions where I've pulled it. Not so much to politicians who, I think we, because because this is the world we inhabit all the time. I think we've got a little bit of a sixth sense about. I'm just gonna if I'm gonna if I'm gonna if I'm gonna stick the boot in. I just want to double check that that's legit. Mm. I think we do that instinctively. Um, there have been a couple of occasions where celebs have waded into the politics. And I've, I've called a couple of them out. Um, so Lily Allen, she criticised Chris Grayling for uh, being in a restaurant when um, when what was the airline that collapsed that went under? Can't remember which one it was. Mm. But uh, she said, "Oh, you know, you were you know, eating in this restaurant instead of instead of welcoming these people home or helping them get home." And actually, was the it picture, Jet Two or something like I that. Think so. Yeah. And actually, the picture she used was from a week earlier, and he was in fact at the airport greeting them. And I just said, "Actually, Lily, you, you're wrong. You know, this is where he was. Mm. That was from a week earlier." And to be fair to her, she went, "Oh, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. Sorry." Yeah. Which is like, well, that was interesting. Um, and there have been a couple of times I've called out celebrities over it because. Uh, you know, they've got these massive online followings and um, and they're also seen to be perhaps a more honest voice because they're not politicians. So when they get it wrong, uh, James Kahn 
did it over uh, blue passports, I think it was, or animal sentience. Mm. No, blue passports. Yeah, and he claimed it was going to cost millions and millions and millions more, whereas actually it's not going to cost a penny more than the than, than purple, uh, maroon passports. So I called him out on that, and um, and he put forward a kind of a half-hearted apology, but left the original tweet up, which is still getting retweets. And I just said, no, 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 you delete the original error. And I, I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. So my view is that by virtue of the fact that I do yeah. that, I think I have an enhanced duty. If someone said, actually, James, you've got that wrong, yeah. you've criticised that person and you are wrong, yeah. for me to go, actually, sorry about that. Um, that would be a good start. Um, so uh, do you think social media is fueling the is making it harder for politicians to admit they're wrong or making it more likely they will because they'd be held more accountable I think it probably makes it harder but potentially I think there is a massive win for us as a political class as a pool of politicians because there's a lot of people who are disillusioned with politicians mm. and they think we're all dishonest and they think we're all in it for ourselves they think we're bad people doing bad stuff for bad reasons and um, I think that could be a good a good way of saying actually um, if I'm wrong I'll admit to it and apologize for it um, and that could be something which which we might be able to use to help re- you know to to restore faith in politicians. Um, I think that that's, um, that would be a big step in the right direction. I think one of the challenges that you have got, of course, with, with, with politics is so much of it is about you know, opinion and perception. Um, and, um, and therefore, people present their critique of you as as if it were fact hmm. where it's actually their view and you can say well that's your view I disagree with it yeah um, and people say well, why don't you just admit you're wrong um, you get that you know, Brexit is going to be a disaster why won't you admit that because I, I don't think it will well you're wrong and you know you're wrong why don't you and you get caught in this kind of whereas if you, you know, if I said you know, there are you know, two palaces of Westminster when actually there's only one that's where I said I got that wrong and I'm sorry uh, I think understanding the difference between a, a difference of opinion and a difference of uh, you know and an error of fact I think is an important one but that could be that could be part of the process and I think that might be part of the repair job because we're seeing this all over the world you know the disillusionment with with politicians is not a uniquely British thing yeah. it really is increasingly a global phenomenon um, maybe social media is part of that maybe it's a cyclical thing and would have happened anyway difficult to tell have there been moments where you've received encouragement support from Lib Dem Labour SNP or you've given it yeah and this is the thing this is the thing that kind of I wouldn't say restores my confidence because that implies that I'd, I'd had a loss of confidence about the, the, the about this place, mm. about Westminster. So I haven't. I, you know, I love it here. I love it. I love the people I work with, including the people I sit opposite, mm. you know, as well as the people I sit amongst. And there is 
a wonderful, perhaps slightly old-fashioned habit of 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 kind of um, I don't know quite how you describe like a professional courtesy in that. Um, so on your own side, there's a there's a, a, a still a strong tradition of handwritten notes. Mm. Little kind of one two line notes on little bits of paper go through the internal mail system. You could do it by email, you could do it by text, but there's a tradition um, where you just write a little note to say thank you. If someone says something supportive, someone's you know given you an idea or helped out in some way. Traditionally little notes. Dear Andy, thank you very much for the point you made in the chamber this afternoon. Um, really appreciate your support. James, through the internal mail, and every day you're getting one or two of these little notes. You tend to get that from your own side, but from across the chamber, people, yeah, Lib Dems, SNP, Labour, quite often, if you've done something well, even if it's well at their expense, so if you've asked a difficult question, which has put them on the spot, but you've deployed it very professionally, very well, you know, you've, you've skewered them mm. and they've kind of gone bah, 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 and, you know, you've, you've, you've nailed them. Logically, you might think that they would then ignore you for a day or be all Humphrey and blah, bloody perfect git or whatever. Actually, it tends to be the opposite. You'll tend to find they'll go, that was a good question. Yeah, that little kind of, yeah, you got yeah. me on that one. And there's a, and that's, and I think, and I think that's where this, you know, this place is far from perfect and we could and should do better on, 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 okay, that willingness to be a little bit vulnerable, all the things you're writing about. But I think one of the reasons why, despite everything, this place does, for the most part, still work, is those, those subtle, little, but regular professional courtesies where people just go, Oh, saw you on Daily Politics this morning. I thought you did really well. Yeah. And you'll get that. You're just as likely to get that from the opposition as you are from your mm. own side. And again, um, I mean, I mentioned you know, Angela Rain is in my head because um, because uh, we talked about her a little bit earlier. When she did that interview with Nick Robinson, I was driving. I was up in I was up in my constituency uh, and I was listening to the podcast. And I and I listened to it and I got to my meeting. And the podcast had about 10 minutes to run. And, you know, I was, you know, my meeting started in seven minutes. Mm. And I you know, was a couple of minutes late for the meeting because I wanted to listen to the end of that particular interview. And then as I was walking briskly from my car into the meeting, I texted her just saying, just heard your podcast. Thought you came across brilliantly. You know, well done. Um... I'm not trying to get anything from it as you know, she's an opposition yeah. front bencher that she has little direct influence on my career or otherwise. But I felt genuinely moved by what she'd said and I felt that she deserved to be congratulated on what was a very talk about opening up to vulnerabilities, mm. bloody hell. She really didn't pull any punches about very difficult teenage years and, and that kind of stuff. Um and I thought, you know what, that needs to be, I need to say this, mm. if not for her benefit, for my benefit, I need yeah. to say this. 
So I send her a little text message and she texts back saying, oh, thank you, hon. And it's those little interactions which keep us sane, well, as sane as possible. And what about, so you've talked about when you've done something well or they've done something, something well. What about when you're struggling? So Jo Swinson said to me, before she went in to give her maiden, I think it was her maiden ministerial speech, um, and I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but a senior Tory stopped and sat down with her and said, you'll be brilliant and you'll do really well. You know, that type of thing. Yeah, it, it, it is a funny one, actually, because um, I've had um, I've had Labour and SNP and, and Lib Dem members say really nice things, you know, saying, oh, you know, you're doing really, really well and keep up the good work and bright future ahead of you and all this kind of stuff, which is really nice. They don't need to. No benefit to them. It doesn't have no harm, to be fair. Um, but there's no benefit to them. And there is... Yeah, as I say, this is where this place works at two levels. The kind of the more public level, where it's very, very confrontational. Maybe quite aggressive, if truth be told. Um, but in parallel to that, there is also a... Um, as I say, slightly old-fashioned, kind of almost Edwardian or Victorian mm. attitude towards courtesy. Mm. If, you, if, if there's an opportunity to say something nice, you, 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 you just take the opportunity. Um, and that can be anything from, you know, uh, Labour employee walks past and you say, oh, it's nice suit. Why do you say that? Because it's a nice suit. If you think that the criticism and sometimes the harsh way we interact with ourselves is injecting little drips of poison into a relationship, then those little niceties are little drips of antidote. They kind of neutralise it. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's how you manage to maintain, in some instances, a multi-decades-long working relationship with people that you are regularly criticising. Mm. Um, and um, and actually in terms of, going back to your, you know, the core point of this, in terms of who you're willing, to, who, who, who you're able to turn to and that kind of stuff, there are a number of occasions where we write, all of us collectively, rise above the the environment that we create um, if someone comes back from a period of ill health um, if if uh, something nasty's happened to someone it's really interesting the, the tone in the chamber um, the way the way people will you know Prime Minister's questions, very raucous, very the most confrontational environment that this place can generate, usually. And yet, um, if someone's come back from uh, ill health, for example, the chamber will fall silent. And um, you, you, you'll hear a very quiet, you know, when they come to the end of their question, you'll hear a very calm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is our way of just saying, just, just it's just a little way of reaching out to say, you know, despite everything, you're one of us, and it's that little kind of 
Um, again, these little moments, uh, and they're often subtle, sometimes too subtle even to be noticed by the outside world, but to the to the to the individual in question, um, it makes a big difference. And there have been times when I know MPs have gone through difficult circumstances, sometimes of their own making, sometimes just bad luck or health or whatever. And the willingness of other MPs here to um, to just be supportive and, and mm. give a little bit of advice, like, it'll be fine, don't worry, you'll get through this. You will get through this. And in a month's time, it will be forgotten. And in a year's time, yeah, this will, you will survive this. And you hear conversations like that coming from both sides of the house. Um, it's... And, 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 and that support is usually offered quite freely. The really interesting point is it's very, very rarely solicited. We are still a really bad pool of people when it comes to asking for help. It's really bad. Um, and I don't know whether that's just how it's always going to be, whether we will evolve, whether we're slightly behind the curve in terms of I think the country in general people are more open they're less stiff upper lip than they used to be mm. the old stiff upper lip thing is no longer regarded as a, an admirable attribute in the way it used to that's what the book's all about yeah. yeah and maybe we're just behind the curve maybe we're 10-15 years slower yeah. and maybe we will get there but at the moment despite lots of evidence that there are pools of people willing to be supportive we are really really shit at asking for help and does that circle back to what happens when people own up something's wrong how they get attacked by the media by the public and sometimes by other MPs maybe yeah I think maybe it's so we're not used to it um, and, and our default setting is maybe uh, to criticise, yeah. you know, rather than to understand, um, and, and that maybe is a byproduct of the job that we do. Maybe it's a byproduct of the kind of people who gravitate towards politics. As I say, yeah. you, you, disproportionately, we're people that are drawn from environments where conflict or confrontation, rather than conflict, mm. confrontation is more normal than in general. So maybe it's us rather than this place. Um, and um, maybe there's only so far we can go maybe we're all, we will always be less good than society as a whole at, at, at asking for and, and giving help and assistance and support um, which on one level is a bit of a shame but um, but yeah it is a it is a it is a tough business mm. and you need a degree of toughness um, but but even the toughest environments do need to have a counterbalance you need to have a, a softer side um, and as I say it does it, it does exist it definitely definitely does exist um, but again the, the, as, as we're talking the thing that really strikes me is that no one asked for it it, it, it tends to be given freely rather than being solicited. Going back to your 
comments about courageous restraint. Yeah. Is is it a question that toughness is not necessarily about not saying, but <laughs> toughness is about saying when something's wrong? Yeah. Well, look, as I said, you know, we the the, the armed forces in relatively short period of time drove through the, you know, the, the British armed forces, American armed forces, and others, NATO armed forces, drove through a really substantial culture change mm. in a really short period of time because it was felt it had to happen and they did it quite successfully not perfect mistakes still happen and um and maybe there is maybe there is the opportunity to do so here as i say i, I at the moment i can't can't quite put my finger on what the mechanism for delivering that would be um but you know, necessity is the mother of invention. If it gets to the point where, you know, the way we conduct ourselves drives a wedge between us and the electorate, it may well be the case that we recognise that we have to change. I suspect it'll be that way round. We'll be we'll be forced kicking and screaming to change our habits. Well, I hope you uh, agree with me. It was a fascinating conversation with James, so relevant to what's been happening over recent weeks, and and hopefully. You know, this is designed to be an interesting podcast, but a useful one as well for people that are in leadership positions in whatever sector or aspiring to be so. And I think that there are a lot of lessons that Jane shared that we can take into our own interactions with with colleagues, with competitors, uh, the people around us generally in the way that we are. So I, I hope that you found that as fascinating as I did and you've got a lot to take away from it. Please let me know your thoughts. Uh, Dan Lowe's uh, conversation will be back next week as as promised uh, save anything else getting in the way um, in the meantime you know please share this uh, I know I ask every week this is uh, uh, a conversation that I think is so topical and it's a great opportunity to spread the word about the Connected Leadership podcast as well you'd really be helping me by doing so uh, and uh, let me know your thoughts on it that would be great. Thank you very much to James for the original interview for the book and for giving me permission to share a conversation that wasn't originally recorded for broadcast. Uh, so I do appreciate him doing that. Uh, and come join me again next week on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.